I'd like you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Psalms, Psalms 102 and Psalms 38, those two particular Psalms. Now, that's not our primary place that we're going to be this morning, but it'll get us there. In my reading, I like to read the Bible in the mornings, and in the reading, you not only run across an interesting statement that you've heard before, but you know, you hear it again and you think about it, and when you start thinking about it, God sort of expands the thought. And you begin to do a little investigation with what you're thinking about. You know, Lord, where'd you say that? And you look over here and you find something. And anyway, in that time of spending time with the Lord, that's one thing you can call that, and looking in his word and searching out things, I came to Psalm 51, which we'll get to in a minute. And it was about, as you know, the psalm about King David and his sin with Bathsheba. And in all that's said there, there is in verse 12 a verse that said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And I just begin to ponder about that verse. The joy of thy salvation. It maybe isn't lacking as much as I think it is, or maybe it is. But there is something about the need, the necessity. This is the greatest loss in my life right now, is the joy of God's salvation. Well, as I began to research and go through that, I thought, you know, that sounds good. I mean, it doesn't sound good as far as what David was going through, but there's something here for us. So as I begin to go back and forth and do a little search, I realize that there are seven psalms in the Bible that are called psalms of penitence, penitential psalms, psalms of sorrow and anguish and repentance and a need and so forth. Seven in particular, Psalm 6 and Psalms 32, Psalms 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 143, those are the seven psalms. As I begin to look in those psalms, I begin to see a pattern of anguish that people in wrong places are going through, experiencing. Many of them, it seems, never get out of it and just learn to live with it. And life is somewhat dismal, somewhat less than what we're hearing it should be. And we ponder and we wonder, why do I not have this? Or why do I not have that? Or why am I going through this? Or why always me? So as I begin to think like that and study that, I came up with this. But I will just simply call it, for lack of a better title, The King's Fall and Loss. Now let's turn to one of those psalms. I mentioned Psalms 102. And without reading everything in there, he said in verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as a hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. And on and on. And then to get down to verse 9. 
For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Verse 10. Because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. I ponder, I read things like that, and I think, why would God do that? Well, the Bible said because he was angry. Doesn't it say indignation and wrath, at least in the King James Bible? God said it was because of that that you, he said, who has lifted me up, and had not God lifted him up? I mean, the sweet psalmist of Israel, a man after God's own heart. Every battle this man fought, he won because he always turned to God. He never blamed others. He blamed himself. He was quite a man. The Jews today talk about David, you know, King David. He is at the top. And yet here he's writing to us. And he said, you have lifted me up. And what? And cast me down. Now, I don't think God lifts anybody up so he can see how far he can throw them down. I don't think he brings any of us into his kingdom and gives us elation and joy just so he can disappoint us by throwing us down. And so I think if anybody is cast down, if anybody is, in, at least in this way of thinking, is thrown down, Why? Well, it says because God was angry, his indignation. Well, why would God be angry with us? We can't be perfect. We can't always just do the right thing, I don't guess. I know Jesus said go and sin no more, but I don't know if I can wrap my mind around that. But I don't want to get thrown down. I don't want to be on the bottom looking up. I don't want to lose all the joy that goes with being lifted up. But apparently here, as he begins telling us in the first several verses, he said in verse 4, my heart is smitten. The relationship that I have known, I don't know. The joy that I have had that just propelled me through life, I don't have. The presence of the Lord that I have become familiar with, and depend on, I don't have. Why? Well, because of your sin. David, what you have done was bad. Look at chapter 38. In chapter 38, he says in verse 2, For thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. Verse 8, I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Verse 10, my heart panteth. My strength faileth me as for the light of mine eye. It is also gone from me. Well, he could still see, but it's spiritual language. Nothing is going right. Nothing seems to be right. Everything that God describes as the way he wants it to be, the abundant life. None of that. Everything is just the opposite of that. I'm in anguish. I'm in deep sorrow. He speaks many times of his bones and his flesh. 
and the pain and the agony and the discomfort of his life. David's grief was based on his sin. I mean, this is the same man who said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me through green pastures and still waters. He restores me, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He wrote that, and he wrote this. Well, it's quite a turnaround, isn't it? It is for me, as at least as a pastoral perch here, one of those things I've never been able to fully understand, how somebody could be so useful to God and so exuberant and so involved, and then next thing you know, they are gone away. Whatever they once had, it was gone. Whatever once they based their confidence in God on, they no longer had it. They gave up and they quit. Now, you can do that. Because a lot of people, when things don't go well for them, they just drift away. But here's what I believe. I believe God's elect were elected to salvation. And while they themselves are not perfect and they themselves are capable of doing wrong, God's going to deal with them. He's not going to let you go. So he begins to lean on you. His hand sore presses upon you. You don't disregard God. You don't now get used to your sin and say, well, you know, I tried that and it didn't work. You don't do that. God doesn't let you live that kind of a blase life. He reaches down into the very most inner part of your being and presses on you. Go to Psalm 51. Because he's going to deal with your life. He's going to deal with your heart. He's going to make you know your need and he's going to make you know your sin. Because the biggest problem in a man's life is sin. And when you lose God's favor and God's goodness, as Psalm 102 describes, because of sin, sin becomes a terrible master of your life. It just rules in your life. It renders you helpless. You begin to cave in to sin in all of its ways. You try to take your eyes off of porn, you found out you couldn't. You tried to quit drinking, you found out you couldn't. You tried to quit gossiping, you found out you couldn't. You couldn't leave that phone alone and tell the latest bit of juicy news or eat that extra hamburger or take a drink of that alcohol or that pill. You found out you couldn't. You were enslaved. Your very passions in your life ruled you. And when they begin to rule, this is what you get. This is when it's hard to worship. When you fold your arms and then you begin, after a while, you begin to question God. Well, why did you say if that's true? Well, yeah. And the next thing you know, you slide. You begin to slide back to the old life, the way you used to live. And as you once were, you still are. You had a moment with God, but you went back. What a dismal, sad life. But isn't it good that while you're in that mode, God doesn't leave you alone? Doesn't leave you alone. Doesn't give you any breaks. But he's passionate. And he said, I saved you. And you're going to go to heaven. I'm going to take you there because I called you there. And in the meantime, I want to prepare you. 
You're going to make yourself by the works of God, the effort of God around you. He's going to prepare you for heaven as a bride adorned for her husband and so forth. In Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verse 1. He said, have mercy upon me, O God. See, he didn't quit. He's not quitting, is he? He's crying out, Lord, oh God. Now, the reason he is, again, uh, I don't know if your Bible has this kind of information, but where it says Psalm 51, before you get into the psalm, my Bible at the top says to the chief musician, and we're not interested in that, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Y'all remember the story? Well, in case you don't, let me brief it because it's part of the whole thing here. David, there's a battle going on. David's back at his castle and his men are fighting, I think, the Amorites. And as he was there one night, probably couldn't sleep, the Bible, I think, says that he was sitting on the roof and looked over and saw a woman bathing. And the Bible said she was beautiful to look at. Now, here's a man that had several wives and several concubines. So his need for a woman in that culture of life was no problem. But here was another man's woman, and she was beautiful to look at. And so he sent his servant, go over there and bring her to me. Now, why she would come, I don't know, but she did. And she came, and he had an affair with her. And she went back. And I don't know how long afterwards it was that she told him she had conceived that she was bearing his child. I don't know if it'd be a month, maybe a month and a half. I don't know how long it would, a woman would know that, maybe two months. And she informed him because her husband, Uriah, was fighting in the war. He hadn't been home. And now she's conceived. She's going to have a baby. Out of wedlock, breaking the law, sentence of death. By the king, by the king who has everything he wants. He has horses and chariots and the best of food and the the very best of clothes and anything in this world in his entire kingdom that he wanted was his. Now, he had no legal right to any man's wife, but he did. And now she's going to have his child. Now, in this culture today, that's no big deal. Half of our children, I think, are born out of wedlock, something like that. So it's no big deal. Nobody is alarmed or bothered by that anymore. When I was growing up, it was a big deal. And when David was growing up, it was a big deal. So David says, oh, my, uh, um, go get Uriah. Get him back here. Uh, Bring him back. And he brings him back. Hey, Uriah, my man, how you doing? How's the battle? Okay, so I'll tell you what, I know you're, you've been fighting hard. I've been hearing some good things about you. I don't know what he said. He might have said that, which if he did was deceitful and a lie. But you see, when sin comes, lying's easy. Hey, how you doing? It's good to see you. No, it's not. How's the battle going? Are you all right? Yeah, well, good. No, it's not. 
So he says, fix this man some food. You go eat, and then he said, why don't you go down to your house and, and spend time with your wife and uh, get some rest and then come back tomorrow. And David woke up that morning. He slept outside his door. One of the servants said, he's sleeping outside the door. You, Uriah, why don't you go home? He said, my men are fighting in the battle and they're dying every day. And my master, Joab, you know, he's fighting and, and I, I don't feel right about going and spending time with my wife while that's going on. He was a true, pious man, as far as I'm concerned. He was a hero, more than any of the other three were. That would be David and Bathsheba and Joab, as we'll get him in here in a minute. So he said, oh my, I got to get him at home with his wife. Um, I'll fix us some food. So David got him drunk. And he still, he slept outside. He wouldn't go home. And David said, okay. Send him back to the battle and tell Joab to put him in the hottest part of the battle up against the wall where stuff falls on you, that he may die. Joab says, all right. And he put him up there and he died. Now that didn't make him guiltless of being a father of this child. It just simply added to his problem. I don't know any Christian that's ever sinned that bad. I don't know anybody that's ever maintained any kind of relationship with God and done such a dastardly deed. I don't know anybody. This is pretty bad. So he's there wondering about all this stuff. Uriah's dead, but she's, oh my. Um, okay, bring her to me. I, I'm going to make her my wife. But they're going to say, well, you married her, and in seven months she's going to have a kid. This ain't going to look good. So one day there's a knock on the door. And as God would do, he sends a prophet. He could have left David alone, but he cares. He has a plan for David. He's not going to let him get by with this. Yes, it is Nathan. Come in, Nathan. What's happening? I don't think they talk like that then, but... Yes, Nathan, what can I do? What's the word of the Lord today or something? He said, well, we got a problem in your kingdom. Yes, let's hear it. Well, there's this rich man... He got a huge flock of animals. And then one of the guys, one of his tenants, I guess, a poor man, had one little ewe lamb. Boy, it's like a pet. I mean, they raise it and the kids play with it, eats in their house and sleeps. In it. It's just a little pet, a lovely little ewe lamb. And this rich man had a visitor come in, somebody that's important came in from a place. And instead of going out and killing one of his own animals, he took that man's little ewe lamb and dressed it so he could feed this guy. And David said, his guy shall and he shall. And Nathan, remember the story? Nathan looked at him and said, you are the man. Thou art the man. And now all the sin that David thought he could hide, he couldn't hide that. I mean, the guy that went to get Bathsheba knew what he was doing. The servant that fixed the food so he could get drunk knew what was going on. Joab knew what he was doing. He couldn't hide all of this. And God sent a man to him. He said, David, you're going to be trouble in your house the rest of your life. You will not die because you repented. That was one of the things that made David like the man God wanted. He repented quickly. But you see, repentance here has not yet removed all of his grief. Oh, God, he said. He said, not only that, but David, the child that will be born to you in Bathsheba will die. It wasn't a child's fault, Lord. 
Well, you talk to God about that. It's part of his judgment. The child will be all right. You're the one that's not. Psalm 51, they're all right in heaven. You know what I mean. Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. And then he talks about, Behold, Lord, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And I know that what you want in verse 6 and 7 is to be the kind of clean and pure person that you make us to be. And then in verses 8 through 12, there's 11 requests that David made. They were all gone from his life. Now, in my preparation for this message, I ask myself, how would a Christian live any kind of a Christian life without this? Notice verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness. What if your life was without that? All your friends were gloomy. The people you talked to were negative. The stuff you watched was negative. The tales you told were negative. It's all gloom. He said, oh, God, make me to hear joy and gladness. Verse 9, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. He's going through something. This isn't gone yet. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Then the verse that I wanted, restore, bring back unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy willing or free spirit. If I don't have this, Lord, what do I have? Lord, all those things that I describe, I have known, I have experienced. I have experienced your presence. Presence and face are similar words, if not the same word in Hebrew. Because I face to shine upon me in number six. One of the benedictions, you know, when the benedictory request in the last two verses of number six. The Lord be gracious unto thee and cause his face to shine upon thee and so forth. Face his presence. That an awareness that God is with you. Not wondering where God is, but knowing that he is there. No wonder people that have that are fearless. No wonder they don't mope and groan like doves and growl like bears. No wonder they can put a smile on their face in the morning when they get up. God is with us, obviously with us, present there. I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is with me, he might say. Now notice something. The things that how David described in the first three verses here, he used three words for sin. Now, sin is sin. 
whether you call sin transgression, whether you call sin iniquity or just plain sin, all wrongdoing is sin. Now, there may be other words that describe a, a kind of a degree of sin or maybe a type of sin. But when you get right down to it, sin is sin. Whether you want to use iniquity or transgression or just the word sin. But the word transgression, used in verse 1, verse 3, and I think verse 13, transgression is a word that usually is used in relation to God. It describes one who goes away from God. It's a choice that you make not to go his way, not to do what you heard. It is usually identified by the word rebellion. That's not a translation, just the word transgressor is, is a rebel. But he is a rebel by choice. You weren't born a rebel necessarily, but you become a rebel by choices. And everybody has a choice. Everybody lives by choices. I will not. I don't want to do that. I don't want to believe that. I don't want that to be true. I will not follow that. I will not go that way. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, whether it's talk in tongues or wash feet, I'm not going to do that. I don't care what the Bible says, some might say. I'm not going to do it because you're a rebel. Your rebellion is what brings the indignation of God in your life. There is no rebel in God's kingdom that has the favor of God on his life. A rebel is simply a transgressor. He may not know he's a transgressor, but when he comes and hears what God has to say, God will begin to point that out and will begin to show him. Take the word iniquity. In verse 5 and verse 9, behold, I was shapen in iniquity. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Iniquity is a word which seems to describe sin in relation to ourselves. I think the word iniquity means to be twisted. And when we begin to twist and distort things, or we try to reason within ourselves that that's not what it means and this is all right and after all I'm perfect and who knows all, you know. And so you begin to make your own little rules and you, you begin to twist and distort the scriptures so that what they say to you is how you live. And you become a twisted creature, iniquitous creature. You live in your own way. You live in your own style. You do things your way. You may have a lust for something. You justify why you do things. Let me tell you something about gossip, about opinions and personal views. You may reason within yourself that what God meant was this, something. You make your own little definition about something. And so you begin to, now this is done a lot with charismatic gifts. A lot of writers didn't want it to really mean what it said because they really didn't want to get involved in that. So you begin to reinterpret things or use logic and reason, begin to make it something different than what God meant for it to be. And you get convinced that it's right. And as far as you're concerned, your opinion is as good as anybody's because nobody actually knows. So you begin to live as though your opinion is truth. And 
That's what you count on for your salvation. And sometimes truth is darkness, your truth. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end of those ways are death. You got to get it right. Or you may have heard a story about somebody. Maybe there's a story going around about somebody or something that somebody did or what somebody was said to have done. And two or three people can talk about it and conclude they got it right. Well, this person, this and that, you know, this and, well, I know that's, well, you know, you know that's, that's easy to figure out. Well, what was he doing over there? Well, you know what he was doing over there. Well, okay, then he was over there messing. Well, of course he was. Do you know he was met? No. Then why are you saying he was over there messing around? Because it seems to be right. And you can begin to distort and twist things. That's called iniquity. And the Bible says in the last days, because iniquity abounds the love of a lot of people is going to grow cold. It is amazing how easy it is to make yourself right or wrong and the standard of right. If they don't measure up to you, thumbs down. Iniquity will do that to you. Iniquity becomes a judge of other people. It becomes critical. You look down your nose at people who don't measure up to you. Or you can't forget a wrong that was done. Because self-centered, self-serving people are twisted creatures full of iniquity. In other words, just simply the word sin, that's a word that has to do with your relationship to God's word. Of course, again, sin covers everything. But the word sin means to miss the mark. It's a picture of somebody shooting an arrow at a target For us, the target, the pursuit, the goal is the word of God. And you don't give it all you got. You fall short. The arrow falls short. And it means to fall short of what God has for us, to fall short of God's glory. It's what sin is. Anything in here, folks, anything and any time that you feel like drawing back each time you feel like retreating from the way you read, not wanting to go that far is sin because you're drawing back. And in relation to God, you are saying, similar to transgressing, I don't want to do that. So you just simply draw back. You're still religious because the world will be religious. Iniquity will be in the church. Sin is in the church but you just don't want to give it your best shot. So here's a man whose sin and whose life, as he describes it, was like that. But we never see, ever see David in the Bible developing a tolerance for sin. You never see him just getting comfortable with it and excusing himself or making excuses saying, well, I mean, nobody's perfect. Well, you can't. You can't always be happy. I mean, well, you might not always be happy because happiness depends on what happens. Joy has nothing to do with what happens. Joy is spiritual. Happy is carnal or earthly. It's good to be happy. But it's better to have the joy of the Lord because you wouldn't count it all happiness if you were locked up in a jail. Trials and tribulations are never identified with the elation of happiness, always with joy. Joy is different than happiness. 
But David said, Lord, I have done everything wrong. I not only have lied, I have committed adultery, I have killed a man. God said to him, when Nathan the prophet came, he said, you have done this. Now listen, he said, you have done this because you have despised me. You find that in 2 Samuel 12. You have despised me. All of us, because we have our own formulation of the way it is and the way it ought to be, we draw, no, <laughs> I don't despise you, Lord. God forbid I despise you. And God said, the thing you did was despicable. Well, yes, it was. Malachi said, you know, you bring as a sacrifice the sick and the lame and the halt. He said, the reason you do that is because you despise me. You despise my ordinances. You despise me. And the folks are saying, we don't despise you. When did we despise you? God said, when you did that. You know better than that. You don't want to do things the way I want you to do. You're doing things your own way because as far as you're concerned, that's good enough. You're despicable. You're full of iniquity. Oh, my. Oh, my. But he said, I acknowledge, oh, God, I'm not going to hide my sin. Everybody knows it now. Nathan, the prophet, said, you know, you're causing all your enemies to talk about and make light of God now. Oh, here's big King David. Look what he's been doing. He's been messing around, oh, but he's a king. He said, you cause that. You cause people to talk like that, David. David messed up pretty bad, didn't he? He had messed up quite a bit. The king, the sweet psalmist of Israel, a man after God's own heart, was very human. And we read Psalm 51 and we think, oh God, if that could happen to him, it could probably happen to us. It could probably happen to us. Go to verse 12 again. Verse 12, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. We have to describe salvation before we can understand the joy. Are you with me? Now, we all know what salvation is. It means you go forward and get saved. <laughs> Actually, salvation is a big, big word. Salvation covers Everything and in every way God relates to you for your good. Everything he does, all the benefits that he gives you is a part of your salvation. It's a part of his, God's saving ways. It's what God offers us. We don't always know what they are. We have to learn what they are. But the whole package of what God offers to us to live on his terms is salvation. We are saved from the penalty of sin, yes, when we got saved, when we were born again. You are being saved from the power of sin, and you will finally be saved from the presence of sin. I mean, you were brought into his kingdom. Now you're living a life you've got to overcome because of whoo. And then one day when Jesus comes, everything will be changed. You'll be a different eternal creature. But. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. What is the salvation of God? What did he say in the 91st Psalm? 
When God said, because you have set your love upon me, I will do this and I will do this and I will do this and I will do this. And the last thing he said in verse 16 of the 91st Psalm, the last thing he said was, and with long life, remember that? Will I satisfy you? That's part of your salvation and the abundant life. With long life will I satisfy you and show you my salvation. Salvation. You're saving ways of God. I will show you how I will deliver you out of the hand of the enemy. I will protect you as you go in and as you come out. I'll deliver you. I'll preserve you. No evil shall befall you. No plague will come nigh your dwelling. I will keep you from the day I brought you to me. I will keep you. I will secure you. No man will pluck you out of my hands because this is part of God's salvation. It is sure and steadfast. It is God's promised provision for his people. Anything, he said, ask and you shall receive. Why? That's your Joy may be full. One of the outstanding expressions, if not the outstanding expression of the indwelling Christ in your life is joy. The joy of the Lord is why you don't give up. It's why you're strong, and that is based on his salvation. God has multitudes of promises and, again, provisions for us. He said that no evil shall befall you. He said no man shall pluck you out of my hands. He said I will supply all of your needs. And when I come again, I will take you with me that where I am there you shall be also. And he began to say there are thousands of promises. Psalm 102, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all the benefits. I mean, the things that God gives you. Well, you don't deserve any of them. You haven't earned any of them, but salvation is not about something you've earned or deserved. It's something that God gives. Teach me thy way, O Lord. Open my eyes to know who you are and what you've given me. Salvation is of the Lord. His saving ways are what makes us glad. The psalmist said, he has made me glad. We sing the song, he has made me glad. Has he or not? Now, has he made you glad? Let's make it personal for just a moment. Has he made you personally sitting in that seat? Are you glad hearted today? Who knows it? Who in your life knows that the gladness and the joy in your life is because of God's salvation, God's saving ways, God's saving provisions? Even the faith you have, God gave you that. Even the opening of your eyes to see, God gave that. Jesus told Peter, he said, you know, he said, who am I? And he told him who he was. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven. It is God who opens the eyes. Opens the eyes to what? To see what he's given you. To see who he is. To give you a reason and an occasion to worship. And to be thankful. And to be joyful. This is what he wants. This is what he's promised. This is what God has for us. 
The kingdom of God is not meat or drink. What is his kingdom? What is his kingdom? What identifies his kingdom? Righteousness, that's a sermon in itself. Living right, doing right, finding out what's right and doing right. Peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, Lord. If that presence that stirs me up is gone, I lose joy. Life has lost its best reason for living. I have no peace, I have no joy. But joy, John wrote, he said, the things that I am writing unto you, he said, are so that as you read them, your joy may be full. Think of it. Jesus said, these things I speak unto you that your joy may be full. John 15, 11, John 16, 24, and even in John 17. He said, I'm saying these things to you. I'm using words. I'm giving you information so that you can have joy. Now, if the words you're hearing aren't bringing joy, there's a problem. You agree? You're awful quiet. If the words that God has given to his people, if the words he gives us, if the things he says to us does not give us joy, there is something wrong with us. It could well be in some degree some sin in your life. Well, you're making us all feel guilty. Guilt is a good thing if it leads to repentance. We should be known for our joy. When our captors, the psalmist said, when they captured us and carried us off to Babylon, there in Babylon, they demanded of us, they said, sing us one of the songs that you sing, all that exuberance in, in, in Hebrew worship. Whew, the joy for us, the gladness, the dancing, the tambourines, the, all the noise and the, and the, oh man, the celebration. Do that for us. We want to see what y'all do. And they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? I'm just the poor. You know why they were in a strange land? You know why they were held captive? Sin. Sin. They knew about God. They knew about his ways. They worshiped. They took sacrifices to him. You read Isaiah. But their heart was in, not in it. They were going through the motions of mechanical worship. Unreal, just Sunday morning stuff. But that wasn't in their heart. And therefore, it wasn't acceptable. But when it comes out of a glad heart, it's Psalm 126. He said, when the Lord turned the captivity of Zion, we were like those that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughters. And our captors are those who tormented us said, boy, the Lord has done great things for them. That's our testimony. At your job site, in your home, with your parents, with your children. This is part of our testimony. It's not so much preaching in words, but it's a, have a glad heart, a joyful heart. It doesn't mean you don't have moments of difficulty and, and times of serious whatever. But the nature of your life is joyful. 
We don't have to fear being around you that we might say something wrong and then he'll or she'll go off. That's something wrong with you. Let me say it again. There's something wrong with you. Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. Maybe we have allowed ourselves to be like that. Maybe we've allowed gloom and doom and, you know, maybe we're getting used to that. Maybe we need God to come in into our life like David and just crush us good. At least we're thinking about how to get out of this. And then when God says, it's your sin, it's your sin. It's your unwillingness to do or to say or to go or to go, whatever it is. You're holding back because of something that's not right. God doesn't want you to live like that. So this happens. With your sin puts you on your face. You turn over and you look up, you'll find God. He isn't going to throw you away. God didn't save you to discard you. He knows your sins. He doesn't save you so you can live as you always please. He's on you. We used to say in growing up like a duck on a June bug. I mean, you don't know what that, most of you don't, but you ever seen a duck chase a June bug? Okay, anyway. It's, I understood all that when I was a kid because I'd seen that. He doesn't leave you alone. He leaves a lot of people alone in churches. They're never bothered by their sin. David was. I hope we are. If we sin, I hope he doesn't leave us alone. I hope we get overwhelmed like this man was and realize, God, every necessary vital thing in my life is missing. Oh, I live and I breathe and, you know, I eat and so forth. But he said, I, I'm not doing well at all. God. It's just because of your sin. David didn't hide his sin. He didn't pass the buck. He didn't blame anybody. He wasn't a victim. Well, it was Bathsheba's fault. No, it was your fault. She had every right to be where she was and to do what she was doing. I don't understand all the way the houses were made. I know they didn't have bathrooms and showers in those days. He had no right to her. She shouldn't even have come. But who am I? Some little whodunit in Kentucky. But I can say this as I read the Bible, all these workings and motions of sin in your life brought you to the place where God put you flat on your face. His presence is gone. His joy is gone. What else did he say? Lord, hide not your face from me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Sure seems like I have been. But as long as I can acknowledge, like he said, my sin is ever before me, God is dealing with me. The way out of this is repentance. Repentance is not saying, okay, look, I, all right, I shouldn't have gone over there. All right, I'm sorry. Could David have said that? He could have said that. Nathan, you mean because, okay, I'm sorry. I repent. Is that acceptable? It is to most of us. It wasn't to God. He could have said, oh, I shouldn't have done. I know, I, I messed up. You know, I'm, I'm human. I mean, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a sissy. I'm just, I, 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 I,
Now, he could have acted like that. I'm so, look, I know I shouldn't have done. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? You can call that repentance, and I can't see the heart. I think a lot of times that's not really repentance at all. The kind of repentance that I think comes gushing forth is the kind of when godly sorrow brings it. Remember godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7? Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Here's a man who says, my tears are like the water I drink. I cannot stop grieving over this. Well, at what point does repentance work then? That's between a man and God. I don't know when the light comes on, when the signal go, whatever it is that a man knows that he's clean. He said, creating me a clean heart, O God. There's something about it. There's something about being cleansed. There's something about being free. And now I want to start the message I came to bring, verse 12 again. See, I had to study all of that and come to that in order to say this. The one supreme thing that I need, O Lord, as much as anything, is the joy that you bring. The joy that you bring through the things you say. The joy that you bring through the things you give. The joy that you bring through the way you've delivered me and protected me. I am so thankful. Or sometimes just praying for your food. I am thankful for this food. I really am. I'm thankful for the air I breathe and for the health that's in my body. I don't want the bone situation. He talks about it in all these Psalms about his body and his bones and stuff. I don't want all of that. I want to know that in the presence of the Lord, there is joy forevermore, Psalm 16. That's what I want. But if we don't have joy, if you do not have the joy of the Lord, anybody in this room, anybody, any of you anywhere, if you are not expressing or living in the joy of the Lord in the church, in your home, at the work site, by yourself, then you don't have a testimony. Did you know that? What testimony do you have without that? What testimony do we have in the world? and to others around us without the joy of the Lord, without that smile on your face, without the kind comment, without the positive statement. What kind of testimony do we have? Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. He said in James 1, when you encounter divers' trials, that's assuming we all will. When you fall into different kinds of trials, what did he say? Count it what? All joy. He did not say, I don't think he said, enjoy the trial. I don't think he said, oh boy, it's going to hurt. Woohoo! No, he didn't say that. He said, count it. All joy. In other words, don't go through this trial moping and groaning and giving up and whining and complaining and, and uh, don't do that. 
Do what Paul and Silas did in prison. Sing a hymn. How can we sing the Lord's song? Because of the joy of the Lord. Who's with you? God with you? Who's on your side? Is God on your side? Has he promised to supply all your needs? Of course he had. Then rejoice. He will never leave you, nor what? But he will lead you into temptation, or he'll let you be tempted. He did Jesus. He sent him to the wilderness to be tested of the devil. And when it came at the end of his life about trials, remember what Hebrews 12 says? You're looking unto Jesus, who the author and the finisher of our faith. What did he do? He endured. What do you say about the shame that he was going to go through, the shame of it, hanging there the way he had to hang on that cross? What did Jesus say about that? He said he despised the shame, didn't he? Didn't he? He despised the shame. What else did he say? Hebrews 12, verse 2. He said he not only despised the shame of it all, but it also said, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He had a testimony. Yeah, but he cried out on the cross. You would have too if you'd gone through what he went through, if you'd have lasted as long as he lasted. The agony and all the terrible things that he went through that day, the pain and the discomfort and the suffering that a human being went through. Your friends are gone. Who do you lean on? Nobody's caught you back. Nobody's helping you, supporting you. The whole nation is against you, spitting on you, throwing stuff at you probably, calling your names as you go by, hanging on a cross. You got what you deserve. When we were in Israel, a, a guy was telling us about that day. We were up at Mount of Olives looking at old Jerusalem or where the Temple Mount is. There's a road down there through the Kidron Valley, and there's a bunch of graves up against the wall. He said he was probably crucified down on one of these roads somewhere. About so high, and people would walk by and spit at him. He said about six feet off the ground. I thought, well, now, the only problem with that is they had to lift up something to drink on a pole. So he was a little higher than six feet. I mean, that's just my brain, okay? But can you imagine if it was accessible where people could walk by and holler and spit? He endured all of that. Never brought down a curse and said, Father, what? Forgive them. If the joy of the Lord is not your strength, if there's not something that God has given you that is greater than your pain and anguish, you'll cave in. And he didn't because there was something awaiting him called the joy set before him that did not allow him to give up. He would not cave in. His testimony was that he endured to the end. The same thing should be our testimony. But we don't endure by just, well, I'm, I'm really going through it today. It's really tough. It's about the baddest day I've had in a long time. <clears throat> Y'all pray for me that I'll hold out to the end. You may not be able to stand very good. And you may have to stagger. And I mean, your body may be weak, but your face muscles aren't. You can always put a smile on your face. And I say, what are you smiling about? Because I know in whom I have believed, and I am counting on him whether in life or in death. I'm counting on the Lord. 
I esteem whatever I go through to please God and to honor him. Whatever anguish and difficulty I go through is worth it all for what is set before me as a prize. That place that God has prepared for us is worth all the anguish in the world. I mean, something is set before us that if we endure, we shall be there. That's our testimony. And as you said there in James, you go through diverse kinds of trial, count it all joy. People are watching you. Your neighbor is watching you. Your children are watching you. Let me tell you something. The advice you give your children will never amount to a hill of beans, but your testimony will. You may give them advice when they're a kid, when they're little, they'll forget that, but they'll never forget how you lived and how you act because that's what they're going to aspire to be like. The way you live is okay. The way you act is okay. I was coaching basketball. I had a couple kids that were being a little rowdy. And I told them one day, then I went out and told the whole team. We had a session in the gym. And I said, a good reason for you all to set an example to everybody else in this school is because there's a lot of little kids that look up to anything as a basketball hero. You know, in Indiana, you know, basketball is like a god. And if you play basketball and you're on the varsity, a lot of little kids want to be just like you. And the way you live is telling them this is the way you want to be. You act ugly, you cuss and drink and smoke and scratch off in the parking lot and act like a fool. They think that's good. Just like kids today that watch that trash on TV. People act like that. They think it's good. They do. Then when you go to bed, they watch that other stuff. I'm telling you, folks, there are so many things in life that can rob us of our joy. So many things that defeat our testimony to other people. So many things that give the false impression of what Christianity is. But one thing the world cannot deny, one thing the world cannot deal with is joy. I don't think the world knows what joy is and will ever know what joy is, but you can, I can. That's our testimony. David said, what do I have? What quality of life do I have without joy? If I have to mope in here, mope out of here, how you doing? Fine, how you doing? I told you I'm doing fine. That, that's, that's my seat. Well, you know I sit there. What's the matter with you? Hello, praise the Lord. Is that your testimony? I hope not. What is our testimony? If I don't have joy, listen to me again. What quality of life can I attest to, testify to, or cause people to say, I'd like to have that? If I don't have joy. I mean, people can't actually see your faith just as a something, but they can see your joy. It's in your face. It's in your smile. It's in the tone of your voice. It's that humility that comes when you are talking to somebody else and esteeming them as better than yourself. Or it's in repentance when you're sorry for what you said or what you did. The joy of the Lord 
because in the presence of the Lord, there is joy forevermore. Well, the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's what keeps me. It's what holds me together. It's what causes you when you feel bad on a bad day or when you're going through a trial and nobody's around to give you sympathy. And you say, I just want to thank you again. I've done this. I'm sure some of you have. I hope all of you have, but I just want to, oh, God, I want to thank you again that by the stripes of Jesus, oh, I was healed. And if I was healed, I am because you cannot lie. I just want to thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. Brother Hamilton, how are you doing? Brother, whoever you are, how are you doing? <laughs> how are you doing? You say, I've got the victory. Smiles on your face. How can you smile like that? We know it's hard. Nobody said it was easy. Of course it's hard. No, it's not fun. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. He endured because of the joy that was set before him. I'm going to talk about this next time we meet next year. About the joy that's set before you. What is the joy of the Lord? What is this joy that God has set before us? Whatever it is, it's what keeps me from falling apart. It keeps me from having to be visited and counseled. It's something that supersedes all of the human look in the world. It's the joy of the Lord. Listen to it again so I can close. He said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Let me have it again. I have known it. I have known it. I've written about it many times. The Psalms are full of David's writing about it. Lord, give it to me again. Bring it back again. I don't want to be down and depressed and downtrodden. Lord, bring it back. I want others to say the Lord has done great things for Shelbyville Christian Assembly. And I at least want him to say the Lord has done great things for Brother Tom. We've seen him up. We've seen him down. Remember what Peter said? First Peter 4. Remember what he said? Turn to it then. If you don't remember, let me refresh you. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, that would be you. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials, which are to try you as though something strange and unusual has happened to you. But what? Rejoice. Rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may also be glad with what? Not only joy now, but exceeding joy then. We might take off running or dancing or hollering or yelling for five or six years. You can't get tired. There's no weariness in heaven. I don't know what we're going to do there. I don't know, but it's going to be good. But he said, look, life isn't easy. You're going to have your troubles. It's going to happen to you. It's part of the testing process. It's part of the finding out who is and who isn't process. But rejoice. 
What you're going through has been designed for you by our Lord to sift out of you the dirt and sift out of you the other stuff and let the good stuff come to the surface. Rejoice. When Christ comes, you're going to not only rejoice now, but you're going to have exceeding joy then. That'll be good. I promise you, folks, that will be good. And he says, if you're reproached, verse 14, for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or an evildoer or a thief or a big... Somebody help me say that. What's that word? What is it? Ooh, that sounds like somebody that's got a lot of activity in their life. Busy, human. But it actually has to do with something on the order of Pinocchio. You know, Pinocchio lied and his nose grew, but this person's nose doesn't grow, but they're busy. <laughs> oh, there it is in other men's matters. If you suffer as a Christian, praise the Lord for it. Don't give up and quit. Don't turn back. Don't complain. Don't blame other people. Don't point the finger. Rejoice. Do like David did. Lord, my knowledge, my iniquity, my transgressions ever before me, it is all my fault. Nobody's fault here but mine. Oh, God, restore unto me, create in me, deliver me, bring me, do for me, show me everything that I once knew as a wonderful life. Bring it all back. <clears throat> you know what? He did. He did. He brought it all back. And the Bible said David lived a long life full of days. Because, you see, a long life is to be satisfied. He brought it back. And one of the things that marked David's life was joy. Praise, worship, and joy. Now there's more because we got to investigate this. What is the joy that was set before Jesus? What was that that so compelled him to endure all kinds of horrific punishment? What was set before him as his joy? Hmm. We need to know that. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, make us again to be a joyful people, at peace with you, believing what you've said, counting on your word to come to pass. Make us like that. Faithful, steadfast, sure, immovable, full of joy. I ask you to do that. And look upon the needs of everybody that is here this morning, those that are mourning, those that are hurting, those that are suffering, those that are in turmoil, those who are experiencing some sort of an anguish. Minor though it be, it's still anguish. And open, open our eyes, Lord. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.